Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Does Cat have it in her to stab a bard? How much spawn would a waller spawn if a waller could spawn spawn? And will we get definitive proof of a hero? Surely not until Cat is fully trained. Note. Orc buoyancy is limited. Avoid fighting the damnable rebels near shoddily built dams in the future. Extract from the Journal of Dread Emperor Malignant II. You have to admire the man for his dedication to science, because as long as you write it down, it's science. I'm pretty sure the scientific method is just five steps for writing the thing down, so you're definitely right there. And that nice introduction to this chapter is apparently referring to a horrible military catastrophe, which ties in with the, no spoilers, but end of this chapter pretty nicely. In chapter eight introduction, Cat and Black and their whole crew arrive at Summerholm, and appropriately enough, Cat is introduced to Legion camps and the generals of the two legions stationed here, uh, Istrid and Sacker. She sizes them up, they size her up, and begin some discussions regarding some issues that have arisen in the city, maybe a hero, before they are abruptly cut off by a true tragedy. Speaking of introductions to people and true tragedies, at the beginning of this chapter, we are introduced to a figure we don't learn much about yet, but who becomes very important in the general backstory of the world. If I may read, as far as I knew, the Wastelanders had only managed to conquer Summerholm twice, once during the conquest, and once over 700 years ago, under Dread Empress Triumphant. May she never return. May she never return. 
all we get in this section is learning that triumphant used flying fortresses and that she conquered Summerholm, but she's here. Our girl is here. I'm just so happy. It is a wonderful introduction to this character. You are right. I, I love it. She's somebody who crops up now and again, mostly to scare people, mostly as proof of what a true Dread Empress is capable of, I suppose. She falls into all of the traps that the Precy tend towards, the outlandish rituals, the massive feats of magical engineering and doing the and hubris. The hubris, the absurdity, but she made it work and nothing could stand before her. Triumphant is evil triumphant. And the only other place we see something so gloriously and indulgently embracing the fundamental story of evil is, of course, Kairos later on. But I don't mean to attack the guide. I don't mean to draw attention to its limitations, but I'm not the only person who's somewhat disappointed that Triumphant never made a made an actual appearance in the story, even just an open hellgate that someone this is Sparta's an enemy into. But on the other side, it's clear that Triumphant is masked and waiting. She will return. Am I? Or no, I'm of two minds. One, that would be wonderful. It would be great to have even just the hint of it, like what you're talking about. There would be no complaints. But on the other hand, having it be this constant low grade, assuredly, but tension in the background. She's a almost this Chekhov's gun that never gets fired. You expect that she's going to. You see her there. She's teased. She's hinted at. Characters reference her. Obviously, we get uh, epigraphs referencing her, but she never makes an appearance. And I think that's I think that's solid. I like that. It, it's an extra layer of tension that never actually gets resolved. That doesn't that doesn't bother me. But we can probably consider it settled now, not for a lack of her power or might, but simply that the Age of Wonders is passed by the end. Her window of return has closed, regardless of her might. Very possibly. But at this point in the story. And for probably the next three chapters, had you asked me where I thought the arc entire of the guide would lead, I would have named a showdown with Triumphant far more likely than one with that dead king up north. He seemed no more pressing than the Rattlings to me. I, I agree. Even at the point a decent way into the guide where Kat begins a diplomatic relationship with the Dead King, even then I wasn't convinced that he would end up being the big bad of the guide. Well, one of the two big bads of the guide. He, it, he was there and it wasn't a twist that it was him all along or anything like that. He didn't come out of nowhere as the big bad in an unsatisfying way. It just wasn't clear who the big bad was going to be. And one of the options, one of the demonstrated options ended up being the case. And that's, you know, that works. Which is all to say, I love her. I miss her. May she never return. So as Kat approaches Summerholm, uh, as she's, after she has her brief internal history lesson, she mentions that Black's horse, also a necromantic construct, had a smell to it. And not a horsey smell, of course, but a magical scent, a, a, a scent of power. This comes up throughout the guide where Cat smells, or if I recall correctly, even tastes magic, maybe. Her relationship with the extra senses her name gives her it's very strange the fact that it's not she doesn't try to be vague and say I, i'm sensing magic or it's a pressure nope i smell it it's that's how she relates to these extra senses and it's it feels 
weird in a good way it, it it's a it's a setting detail a characterization i'm not sure i don't know that we get that same intimacy with other people interacting with magic uh things like itches or or senses that kind of thing but smelling it, i just i just appreciate that that's the sense cat opted to descri- to use to describe what's going on such a weird one well, you have to understand, she is Callowin and therefore unrefined and incapable of really understanding these senses that, frankly, were given to her and she never earned. Now, the opposite end of the spectrum from the rude and base Callowin condition would be, of course, not even human. I want to note that Catherine considers briefly the hopelessness of the Callowin situation when Black notes that Summerholm has always been the keystone to warding off invasions and it continues to serve that purpose. She wonders who would be doing the invading. Uh, Prosser is embroiled in their, quote, particularly nasty civil war of theirs. The free cities only managed to stop attacking each other when they were being invaded, which is very true. And then she goes on to note as an entry on her list of potential saviors of Callow, the fanatically isolationist elves to the north hiding in their forest. Catherine, do you do you do you know what an elf is? I think that's the point <laughs> that she definitely doesn't. She's got the stories. I think the elves for her are probably similar to the Fae. They're these mysterious things that I think for the elves are loosely aligned with good and that's enough for her. They're far away and weird. And I can't imagine even Imperial education spends a a lot of time delving into elven foreign policy. I mean, elven foreign policy is just two letters long. Uh, You're not wrong. As opposed to dwarven foreign policy, which is three letters long. Again, I think that's a pretty good summary. So I'm going to need your wisdom here. Catherine tells us that a Precy Legion is 4,000. Is this a Roman measurement? Depending on the era, roughly, yeah. The on-paper strength for different eras, uh, that would be the low end, but yes. And then the Praecapta Militaria indicates that there are at least that many camp followers, merchants, and servants. Would that also match up with a Roman norm? I'm under the impression that that would be low for most, at least, European militaries moving around, uh, except for Republican Rome, which famously was pretty light on camp followers because they were big on being incredibly fast over land for an infantry army. That kind of faded over time, but there was a period of time where Rome's camp followers were almost non-existent, and that was very weird. Rome's pretty weird. Very true. In reference to these camp followers, Catherine is shocked and says, weeping heavens, it's like a second city. And I am honor-bound to point out that she needs to stop. It's the worst, and I hate her for it. It sounds wrong coming from her mouth every single time, and I'm just reading it on a page. But what isn't a backwards echo, but rather a clever piece of foreshadowing, we see among these camp followers a man trying to guide a herd of goats into a pen. And this is our first mention of goats in the story. Goats, which play a very important role. You're saying that this moment, rather than any other time Kat has seen goats, is planting a seed in her mind? Exactly. I feel like in the few episodes we've done so far, we have made some connections, some foreshadowing. We've made some connections and 
discussed some foreshadowing that, you know, these things may have been a bit of a stretch or more reader side than author intent, which is fine and just as valid. But this one, I have to say, is not a stretch at all. And you're exactly right. Thank you. I thought it was relatively blatant. As we, however, reach Summerholm, we discuss the prevalence of mixed-race marriages in the city. We see a mingling of peoples, of cultures. We see a we see an explosion of trade through the city. It isn't just in the first chapter, but it's throughout where we see that the conquest brings with it pretty objective upsides. There's profit, there's tolerance, there's mingling. There are a lot of wonderful things that have come out of a violent and flourish within the continuous violence of occupation conquest. And I think that's fun to include. It is. And we kind of joked about this last chapter. This is a conquest by a people who in some metrics are are more advanced than Kalowins and other metrics, not as much. That's how civilization works. Um, but more importantly, Price is headed by some eminently practical people. You've got black and you've got militia. They are not going to, they're evil, they're villains. They are going to be ruthlessly practical at points, and that's fine for them. I'm not laying a real life moral value on being ruthless here. They understand that being the comedically villainous overlords doesn't benefit anybody except maybe those overlords in the short term before heroes rise up. But being conquerors who make Kalo quote unquote better, that at least slows down heroes. You've got people who want things changed, of course, but the nicer, the better price is, the less pressing the need is. And if there's not a pressing need, it seems maybe less likely for the kind of inciting incident necessary for a hero to rise up. Plus, it frankly just benefits price. Like what you're talking about, it absolutely goes both ways. And aside from the material gains of conquering a new breadbasket, Having your culture merge with another culture outside of trying to keep some kind of very tight control over the nationhood of your people, which is already long past for praise, is only beneficial. Um, it, it is a it is a nice thing. Yeah, the conquest was bad. It was a it was an invasion to take resources, and it killed a lot of people. But at this point, aside from the mazuses of the world, it seems to be going all right. Where I put this in my notes was that Black and Militia keep an eye on the mundane to control the national. Uh, Black's, not abandonment, black stationing of 8,000 soldiers as garrison meant mixed-race marriages were an inevitability, which strengthens the bond between Callow and Praise. Even though something as simple as marriage is hardly a concern for a conqueror, typically. Conquering is about who you kill, not who marries whom, but every piece of the puzzle is slotted in through Black strategy and Militia's endless planning. Absolutely. Even plan that we'd be saying this now, you know. <laughs> I believe it. Every every marriage that takes place is a Callowan who says, the Precy aren't so bad. In fact, I married one. And uh, that Callowan's friend who says, oh, yeah, my friend's spouse is great. And that Callowan's friend who says, oh, yeah, I actually know somebody who married a, a legionary. And that person's friend who says, I've heard, actually, they're not all bad, you know. It's it weakens any power a an uprising hero might have. It 
weakens any it weakens the base from which a rebellion might draw support every single marriage does this and that's just marriage which is a more official and binding thing that this is happening at every scale down to the legionaries are visiting market stalls in summer home or the legionary that happened to walk through smiled at a kid instead of angrily grabbing a sword or what have you it's a thousand small interact eight thousand small interactions every day that for the most part are going to be neutral to positive they're going to it's going to normalize the relations if nothing else but how many rows of teeth are in that smile that is a very good question and it does go back to something we did talk about last time, that it was definitely a strong choice, not strong in the sense that it's the right one, but strong that it is a bold one. A, a bold choice, then. We'll stick with that. A, it is definitely a bold choice for Black to have stationed such non-human legions in Summerhome, uh, you know, the legion under Istrid especially. But again, if you're normalizing things, if, if orcs are just the people who are here as well, that works pretty well in the long term. But of course, that's not the only opportunity that this interaction gives. This is our introduction to the eyes of the Empire, right? I believe it is. Agents kind of vaguely are mentioned a few times, but this is the detail we get for the first time. And we don't really get too much detail on them, but you have to love the redirection of the tattoo. It is a lot of fun. It's an interesting thing. It feels as though it works up to a point, but I know Black goes into this, that people see what they expect to see. But there's still, you know, I was about to say Callow's efforts to root out the spies would be a, a level of communication. But really, Callow's intelligence network is incredibly weak, and that's a a whole thing later on. Vivian fixes that. And it's interesting how often the comparison is made to the eyes later on when here the Black is specifically saying the eyes are mostly cover for the actual spying that's going on. Well, the eyes, as Callow knows them, as popular sentiment knows them, are a cover. But is the network underneath still the eyes? But really the real eyes? Yeah, I suppose that's hard to say where those, I don't know, administrative lines are drawn. I got the impression that the eyes are specifically the sneaky spies with the tattoos who wear cloaks and that the other spy groups, the organizations, the various networks don't have ominous names like that because they're only going to be named internally. And while we do know that Black has a flair for the melodramatic and just the generally dramatic, I don't know that if he were naming something that only he was going to be using or that only especially Scribe was going to be using, that they would go for the eyes of the Empire. At the end of the discussion with the spies, or towards the end of it, Black says, and I quote, Once you give people what they expect to see, he shrugged, they rarely bother to dig any deeper. Pat hears this and considers it and draws a very good line, a very useful line to named uh, and how their stories work. Uh, she talks about... Um, Quote, everything surrounding names had a pattern to it, almost formulaic steps that every child learned from the cradle through stories of heroes and villains. People who adhered to those steps, whether consciously or not, became predictable in a way. End quote. Cat 
here's this thing about sometimes you put fake spies forward and the real spies get more information that way and draws from that a lesson that Black teaches her assuredly many times and that sticks with her incredibly well. Cat and Black both build most of their reputation, their reputation for success and invincibility on manipulating stories on or at least on seeing stories developing and knowing where the ending is going to be, mostly through being familiar with tropes. And we see a nice beginning to that. I believe Kat has discussed similar things before, but this is a direct example of that type of thinking beginning to sink in. And knowing what we know after having read it makes these early chapters where this is going on so much more interesting to me that we are getting these peeks into the beginning of Kat's late game mindset. Whereas the first time you're reading through, you think, oh, that's neat. And, you know, you can move on. But looking back, it's very, very, it's fun to see <laughs> where those patterns that Kat uses, those manipulations, those strategies, where they come from. And this is only a week into her train, or not even training, really. She's had some training now, but a week into her acquaintanceship, a couple of days into her training, and it's beginning. Black has poisoned her mind from the first. And I do mean poisoned, and I do mean it positively. That's a fair description of what's going on. Directly after this conversation, Kat acknowledges that she knows she would, quote, have a welcoming committee waiting for me in the city. She knows that the other claimants to the name are present in Summerholm, which I think it's interesting that all three are there and she's the last to arrive. Probably gives her story a little bit of power if she's showing up to this last, actually. But uh, she is approaching a place of imminent threat where there are three people who can magically sense her, who want her dead or dissuaded, the easiest way to get there being dead. With Black's presumed full knowledge, unless she very specifically kept from telling him. And while we don't see her telling him that the claimants are there, we don't see her not telling him. Black is aware that this threat is coming up, that there are three people who will be ready to kill Catherine, and he just accepts it. He's extremely trial by fire with his approach to that. He'll, he'll give her information and everything he knows. He'll give her the little training he can in the time allowed. But hey, Catherine, fight for your life. Have fun. Try not to get stabbed. I think that fits in very well with the villainous mindset towards things just at the base level. But I also wonder if that is Pat. But I also wonder if that is Black working to encourage Pat's name to be better, to be stronger, to be more independent. This initial conflict is going to set the stage for Kat's ascension into her role, her full ascension. And if her mentor is looking over her shoulder the whole time and helping her, it feels like that would breed a type of squire that is less independent. Just as a pure conjecture, I have a feeling if Black helps her win the claimancy struggle here, does she end up with struggle if she doesn't have to struggle to become the squire i don't know it, it's that kind of thing her name is shaped by all of these early level these low level things these foundational things and i think black keeping his distance is him helping her grow into a more full name he does the same thing early on he stabs her and his advice is survive that's more or less what's happening here. He's tossing her towards three people that want to stab her, and his advice is basically survive. At least express their love in different ways. It's true. It's beautiful. No, this is not a there are no wrong ways. This is the wrong way. It's effective, but do not treat your daughter like this. 
I suppose you're probably right. We also learn in this chapter that there's no such thing as a reliable truth spell, which is an interesting magic tidbit, a fact about divination you're not able to just assume. Though I would bet that the cheating Grilgrim can probably do it. Probably. The no reliable truth magic is a pretty common trope, and it's always a lot of stories that have magic and that have some kind of truth magic feel like they tiptoe around that line of well, it can help you get the answers, or it makes people more suggestible, or this, that, or the other thing. I understand why I feel as though I used magic to get the right answer is typically going to be a pretty unsatisfying conclusion to a problem. And in-universe, it also makes sense that everybody has some lens through which they view the truth. There's some subjectivity even to the most strict truths of a world. So having magic nudge people towards that doesn't necessarily produce the results you want. But it is it is interesting to have it called out so specifically here and then never really come up again. Well, since it's ruled out here, we don't have to ever grapple with it. That's true. Everybody in this story is a perfectly reliable narrator. So remember when they're in the crown of the dead and things are proceeding well enough and then a chapter opens and it's totally unclear what has happened or what is happening? I'm afraid I have no idea what you're talking about. I haven't read that far yet. Oh, okay. So later in the book, they go to the crown of the dead, which is a place run by this cool skeleton guy. And then they don't know what's happening. Oh, that sounds great. I really look forward to getting there. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. So as they approach Summerholm, there's there's this discussion about the spies. There's uh, a little bit of teaching going on back and forth. Kat's concerned about her rivals. And then Black reveals that his spies have missed something or there's something going on that leads him to believe there is a hero in the works, either on the way up or has started their story and is causing trouble. Kat's concerned about this and points out that Black has said that they're, you know, working to prevent this from happening. Sometimes the heroes get through. But what's interesting to me is Black says, Kat asks if the hero is careful or lucky. And Black responds, quote, I found the more dangerous heroes are a little of both, the knight replied. Again, though, knight, not black? Okay. The infestation is still limited to a single role, I believe. If they'd assembled a whole party, it would have been noticed. So we're dealing with a very specific type of hero. There's a couple things in there that I think are worth pulling out and looking at. First of all, at the easier end of things, a whole band would have been noticed. Uh, I'm wondering if that is because a band attracts a variety of heroes, and thus at least some of them would fail to be stealthy. In a band, you're not going to have five thieves. You're going at lowercase thieves, not Vivians. You're not going to have five stealthy names necessarily. You're going to have somebody who's the frontliner, somebody who's um, that kind of thing. Or if it's simply that once a band is formed, they can no longer stay under the radar just because the momentum of those five stories pulls them into direct conflict. I don't know, the calling out that if they were a group, they would have known about them certainly. Like the certainty with which he says that I think is interesting. I would go with the second, that the momentum of the stories pulls them along because Black acts with such certainty, not with individual cases or even statistical norms, but rather with the inexorable might of the story. That's what Black knows by heart. That's what Black can account for without fear. I think I probably tend to agree. Uh, I just thought it was an interesting thing to look at. 
But it also leads us to, he says, so we're dealing with a very specific type of hero. We've got, he refers to a whole party, which we, you know, eventually in the parlance of the story will refer to as a band, which is the trope of the five-man band. But this is sort of an early time where we're looking at categorizing names outside of simply, (laughs) are they good or evil? Can they do magic or do they fight? That sort of thing. There's types of story behind and yeah, types of story behind and beyond the simple practicalities of what can this person do now that they have this role. And I think they go on. Yes. Uh, Black says the gritty avenging type I'd wager. And so there's that next level of categorization that he's aware of and that these extra levels of categorization, these layers to what a name is are getting peeled back for us, the reader, and they have a narrative of their own, a story of their own. Yes, the mm, I'm going to have to come up with an example now. Yes, the squire may have a path that they follow towards knighthood uh, just at the base basic level of nothing unique to this story necessarily but does the squire fall under the broader category of the treacherous lieutenant or the devoted follower or the uh, what was the term the stray dog the feral dog from the streets that is sort of just scooped up by the knight there's a layer to the roles that i i think is interesting that complicates things a lot and black's familiarity with it reveals another layer of his awareness of the the meta realities of the universe and an extra (laughs) an extra whole category of things to keep track of in his schemes but would you say that gritty is the avenging type gritty is an avenger he's but he's also more proactive than that i think he sort of transcends being limited by these labels reasonable it is remarkable how black's expertise is so casually demonstrated uh especially on the second read through how much depth to the world he can demonstrate with so shallow a lens which i think is ideal it's he doesn't take a break to say actually cat let me discuss the layers of how we categorize heroes and here's the official no he just talks about his experience and how it applies to this situation and similar situations and he trusts that Kat is capable enough to directly learn from these things and to apply them. And I think that's very indicative of their relationship and of their individual personalities as well. Catherine wonders to herself when discussing what this hero threat might be and finding out that it will be this gritty avenging type. She says that it sounds more manageable because she didn't know if she had it in her to stab a bard honestly. They were always charmingly ineffective in the stories. It would have been like kicking a puppy. Catherine asks herself, do I have it in me to stab a bard? And really the entirety of the guide is an answer in the affirmative. When Catherine is finally introduced to General Istrid, Istrid greets Black. Uh, She offers her arm. She calls him Warlord, which on a second reading, what a title. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then Catherine notes, the word she'd use wasn't one I'd read in the books I'd been given, but the pronunciations was fairly similar. Bracket, sick, bracket. Uh, She then supposes it might be that it's a dialectal difference or just a difference with time since her text was written. But I have to say, for a beginning language learner like that, that's spectacular willingness to 
grapple with ambiguity. A tolerance for that kind of ambiguity is one of the fundamental predictors of success in language learning. And I think that's an indication that she's starting to learn a little bit, even if she doesn't actually have learn properly. And speaking of really fun uses of language, we get a slur her, we get a slur her. The tall orc frowns, looks at Black and says, she looks like Waller Spawn. We do, it, it's, you're talking about Kat grappling with difficult things for being such a new learner of the language, and obviously she's got the aspect. And following up this slur, we get a, a nice, Kat throws a, a little quip back at um, at Istrid a bit down there that's also you know they're kind of going back and forth and it's it's also like a very impressive thing i don't have a lot of experience with learning languages other than my native language which is english she <laughs> she's a week we into learning demonstrate for us sometime oh gladly she's a week into learning a language and she has like a sort of witty quick response that's meant to say um i don't know a, a, a yeah, she has this little this little quip back to something Istrid says. Uh, you meet you end up meeting all sorts of interesting interesting. Let me try that one again. She says you end up meeting all sorts of interesting types when stabbing people. Cat is being humorous in a language she's known for a week. And correct me if I'm wrong. That's pretty good. I have a feeling I'm about to be corrected. I agree entirely. And also the complexity of these sentences. Starting off, she just says, half, that a problem? Uh, with my familiarity with a number of West European languages and a little familiarity with East European, that's pretty doable. You just say the word half, and then you say, that a problem. And in anything east of the Iron Curtain, you just say, that problem, because no articles at all. And Orcus doesn't feel very article-y to me. But to then, you end up meeting all sorts of interesting types when stabbing people. That when stabbing people in a whole lot of languages adds a whole lot of complexity. Because you're locating your statement in time with a verbal phrase, stabbing people. It's not at six o'clock, but rather when undertaking this action. There's a lot going on there. I don't know the rules of Karsum, but I presume Karsum assumes a more difficult cast when you add those kinds of phrases. I couldn't get a subsume in there. Learn is absurdly broken, is what we're saying. Because this isn't even learn, but much more just learn. Right. <laughs> During this introduction, we get Cat uh, being introduced to Istrid, but we also get Istrid being introduced to Cat uh, briefly. Sorry, I'm looking for my actual quote. Uh, and Scribe is here for this, these introductions, and she gives some information to Kat. She says, quote, Istrid's clan was the second to side with Black when he was still the squire, end quote. And I'm interested in your thoughts on this, since it's, I would say, not particularly clear. Do we know what sort of lifespan orcs are rocking? Okay. I, ask, I ask because if... The implication from this, to me, is that Istrid was around when the clan sided with Black, rather than it being the clan sided with Black before Istrid was there, since they've known each other for a long time directly precedes that. This is when Black was still the squire. That was some time ago, if I am remembering my timelines correctly. Is Istrid just ancient at this point? And she's not named, so she doesn't have Black's eternal youth. Wiki doesn't make the answer immediately apparent, and I don't trust anything I think well enough to make guarantees, even though I feel like they die young. 
Oscar. It's hardly the most important thing to come out of this, but I I just we've discussed this before. World building is fascinating to me, to us, just all aspects of it. And I'm curious about orcs and how they are represented in this story. And I'm, you know, this is a little bit of information about Istrid. Um and potentially orcs more generally. So I'm just curious if you had any memories that I'm lacking here about that. I think we must solicit help from our listeners. That would be great if anybody has this offhand, because I certainly don't. Thank you for bringing us a stumping question. Don't do it again. I'll do my best. Uh, Only softballs from now on. So in this discussion where Istrid is being introduced to Cat and vice versa, Scribe shows up, has a brief discussion with Cat, and sort of departs, and Captain explains, uh, quote, it's part of her role to stay in the background. She'll pop up again when she's needed, end quote. That is one of those abilities, one of those powers that is so, even more so than a lot of things we see in this story of all stories, so extremely narrative and meta. It's it's not a demonstrable power. It's not a flashy something. It's not where you can say, oh, my soldiers are fighting better, or I've summoned this darkness to do my bidding, or I am on a horse made of light now. She just is in the background, explicitly in story. She's in the background. And that's just part of her power set, part of what she can do. She fades from focus, if this were a visual medium. And that's just, it's very interesting. It's very cool to see that variety of abilities and how very... hmm, Scribe doesn't fit the traditional mold of a lot of names because she's not big. She's not as famous. She's not a frontline person. She's behind the scenes, which means this there's, you know, the stories of the scribe, of the person who runs things behind the scenes, is powerful enough that it can make somebody actually be behind the scenes in a way that is really hard to grok for people who live in the real world, but within a story, I guess to an extent makes sense. It's just such a weird power. And a fantastic one. Oh, absolutely. That Catherine gets a scribe of her own, so to speak, is one of the greatest things about the story because we get to see how that ends up playing out. Even though he's a frontliner in so many ways, he settles into the role of Urzat scribe very well. And we understand better what this really entails. Though, of course, we'll have to keep an eye on that as we get there, of course. That actually gets a scribe and a half. She gets Hakram and also kind of scribe. That was extremely ableist of you to call Hakram a half. I suppose that's one way you could take what I said. I choose to. Listeners, tear him apart. I really look forward to that. Thank you. As they enter the camp and as Scribe vanishes, everybody pays attention to Black and Captain walking along and Catherine's there too. And she says that the weight of attention made her uncomfortable. Quote, the feeling of the three other potential squires hadn't gotten any closer, but I had more than them to worry about now. There may very well be a hero somewhere in the masses. And if they were looking for a target, I was painfully aware that I was the easiest one available. Catherine is right next to Black and Captain. She's not invincible. We know she is an I'm glad she doesn't think she is, but and I know that we know who William even is, but come on, what kind of hero could make an attempt right now and get away with anything by themselves, other than like the really absurd ones like Saint, and if Saint were around, this wouldn't be happening like this. If Saint were around, Black wouldn't have said, maybe a gritty Avenger and we're going to walk openly through this camp. No, the entire world would be here. 
<laughs> or not here explicitly. Like, <laughs> I don't know what their policy for the saint is, but I'm sure they have a very specific one. The entire city would be undead. I don't feel like that would do anything. Related to what you're talking about, walking with Black and Captain, I just want to call out the previous sentence where Kat says, and I quote directly, quite a few people seemed to recognize Black and Captain. They're in a Legion camp, and she says quite a few people seemed to recognize the Supreme Commander of the Legions and his second. Also, his second is maybe the most identifiable person here because she's physically unique. Hey, Kat, yeah, they all recognize those two. This is like when she walked into the party and was disappointed that people were looking at Cat and er, Black and Captain instead of her. Cat, these are two of the most famous people in the world. Why, why are you always commenting on on people noticing them? They're going to get noticed. She has absolutely no sense of perspective, and frankly, she never develops one. She just develops the strength to make things match her perspective. And I think that's beautiful. Oh, true. So true. When we meet Sacker, we're introduced to her as a small goblin woman under five feet. Catherine does not have much experience with goblins. I took that to as though small was modifying woman in the same way goblin was, not that she was saying it's a small goblin. I I, I hope, because she has met a few other goblins, and... I hope that she understands that goblins are physically smaller than the average human. But then again, she is Callowin, so... They're silly creatures. And while it's not from Kat, shortly after this introduction, we do get a Gods Below from Istrid. So finally, somebody understands who... which set of deities they're supposed to be referencing. We really do. Dan, a legend. As Black and Sacker are catching up and really just going through a, as Istrid refers to it, a, a ritual here, this greeting, Istrid kind of cuts them off and makes a kind of rude comment and Kat agrees with her. And there's this impression that she, that Kat's saying this to make a good first impression. She's being honest. I'm Kat's annoyed by this, I'm sure. But it seems weird to get in the middle of a friendly, probably, but still very present disagreement or longstanding argument or some kind of heat, I suppose, between these two people who have known each other presumably for a very long time with Sacker and uh, uh, Istrid, and Kat jumps in the middle and takes a side immediately. I gotta say, if I were in this situation, that would not be where I would be trying to situate myself, which, fair enough, I probably wouldn't end up with a name, so understandable. But it seems odd what's going on here and decide, yeah, I'm going to agree with somebody that's attacking Sacker so that I have picked a side for some reason. But she did pick the right side. I don't know. I do know. Okay. General Sacker, according to Catherine's analysis, is by far the oldest goblin I'd ever met, and that made her very, very dangerous. Most of their kind never made it past 35, and looking at the general, I guess she was pushing 40 goblin age. And we all know what kind of goblin makes it to 15. You're saying that Kat picked the correct side and then listed all the reasons why she did not. Sounds to me like Istrid was the wrong choice between the two of them. Are you doubting the words of the lesser, lesser footrest? Only cowards make it to 15, and Sacker is near three times a coward. I'm sure that that comment would go over very well with Sacker. Actually, please do not tell her. <laughs> There's a very real chance it wouldn't bother her. I have the impression that being accused of cowardice probably doesn't phase a goblin much. Also, those rules are very clearly no girls allowed, considering mm -hmm. the divergent lifespans alone. Mm -hmm. So the chapter ends with 
a bang, pardon the goof. There's a discussion that's interrupted, a discussion that's almost certainly pertinent to what causes the explosion uh, in Hat's mind and everybody else's mind here. But just before it, we get a top tier orcish idiom when Istrid says, we've got fresher corpses to eat. There's an exploding pavilion, something about a hero. Great. All of this is great. And we're going to talk about it a lot, probably more next episode when these things kind of culminate. But this right here, we've got fresher corpses to eat. I I love orcs so much. That's such such a powerful idiom to just have in your back pocket. It really does say something because that orcs eat corpses. Sure, okay, whatever. Lots of creatures and societies, I guess, can and do in the world. But the saying means that specifically eating corpses is a major cultural element, which we know now. But what kind of society, a reader must ask themselves, has enough corpses going on all the time that the idea of fresher corpses is a common enough experience to create an idiom? They have standards for... They have... Yeah, they're, they're around enough corpses that they choose to eat fresher ones rather than older ones. And they're eating the corpses. It, it's so good. It's, it's one of those one-liners that is informative and amusing and really draws you into the story. It's, it's excellent. And that is when the pavilion explodes. Which we will probably have to discuss next week, since that is all of the time that we have for today, folks. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Erratic as we discuss... Sharpers. Smokers. And Brightsticks. We will see you then. Podcast Guides Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was The Old Water Mill Meditation by Nature's Eye outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions? comments or contributions are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors email us at thelongprice at gmail.com if you'd like to materially support our work find our patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name receive personalized stories and art or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make all this possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 9, Claimant. Can 
we keep this going? Teacher's foreign policy, I think, is probably four letters long. I will take that. Hallows is five. Losing the thread at this point. Hmm. I don't know that I can get a six. Is it the name of a country? For Callow? Yeah. It's just the word spite. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm struggling with a six-letter word for either Proser or Praise here. Six-letter can be the Ratlings, the the Chain of Hunger. Hunger or Hungry. I was going Devour. Praise can do seven. Conquer. Yep. I think uh, it's a stretch, but I, for Proser, you could do, you can do an eight. Uh, There are two different eight-letter words I can... Kind of, they can kind of work for Proser for foreign policy. One is Crusades, Ooh. and the other is just the word internal, since their foreign policy seems mostly to be based on their nonsense internal politics. I don't really like either of those, but... I mean, Levant is internal. <laughs> yeah. But I wanted a nine for them with Blood Feud. Well, that's good, but... though. <laughs> Proser's foreign policy is actually a nine-letter name, because let's be real. I mean, only recently, but oh, fair letter. enough. Cordelia, nine letter, Hassenbach, got it. Okay. <laughs> even when she's at her weakest, it's still all centered on her. Like, well, even I ha- when she's not first prince. <laughs> who has the last stand? I suppose you can make that argument. All that's really less left is if we can get a 10 letter for the free cities, then. Got an eight letter. Dang, there's two good eight letters there. There's hierarch or civil war. V O T E F O R W A R. What were the first letters? V O T E. <laughs> Ten letter. Kairos's last name is Theodosian. Honestly, that is the most important lineage in the entire Free Cities. Right, we did it. That's everybody that matters, and one nation that doesn't matter. So for some reason, we had to lump the. We got the Rattlings in there. Nation is a strong. Well, maybe nation, not state, though. Agreed. And we did skip the Drow, but theirs just gets lumped in with Callow, I guess. No. The problem with drawboard policy is it's just cannibalism. Uh, they use a different language, so uh, we, oh, the letter system cannibalism is work. 11 letters. Boom. Oh, so. <laughs> Incredible. Um, I think this entire section is cut, but... What? There's no way. I, you gotta at least get us up to spite. At least let us get up through callow. Okay. Um, back on track, I guess. <laughs>